You're listening to Winning Season, the podcast for women leaders who work within male-dominated industries. Hold up. Yeah, that's almost every industry. But listen, on this podcast, we talk about tools, tips, techniques, so that we can thrive in our work environments and we share our secrets to success. That's why we call it Winning Season. My name is Jacqueline Twilley, president of ZeroGap.co and best-selling author. I'm your host, and I'm excited that you're here for today's conversation. What's up, winning season? Y'all, this episode is so good. This continues our series, Moving Beyond Black Squares and Hashtag. And listen, our guest today just brings it all together and weaves this conversation together so beautifully. Also, y'all, let me tell you right now, my internet was tripping. So I have Wi-Fi extenders at my place because we've all been working from home, right? Uh, I had increased my internet speed, all the things. And we edited this episode and tried to piece together my voice. You'll hear me cut out a little bit. Yeah, just go ahead. I got the Teddy Riley internet and um, I apologize. Moving forward, your girl will not be recording podcast episodes at home because it gets a little dicey. So bear with me. It takes nothing away from the superstar of this conversation, Jodi Ann. She is so phenomenal. So let me give you a little bit of background on Jodi Ann. I love her leadership on LinkedIn. I love all of the things. She's been everywhere and she has inspired me to be brave. She's inspired me to be bold and I'm supposed to be telling you her bio right now because that's this part of the episode and guess what? I'm fangirling out and I'm sure you will fangirl out as well because she is that amazing. So let me give you her bio. Jodi Ann Bury is on a mission to disrupt business as usual to achieve social change. She is a speaker, a writer, and an equity advocate. Her work is grounded in centering the experiences of historically underrepresented communities and the systematic intersectional approaches needed to address inequalities. Jodi Ann holds a master's in public health from the University of Michigan. She prides herself on being a cool auntie. What, what? She is a twist out queen, cancer survivor, yes, adventurer and reluctant dog owner. Jodi Ann is currently working on her first book and podcast called Black Cancer, which explores the studies about women of color and healthcare. All right, let's dig into this episode. Winning season, we have Jody Ann Bury with us today. She is all things phenomenal, as you just heard. So, Jody Ann, thanks so much for coming to the Winning Season podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So, 
we're going to hop right into this conversation. And I'm going to start off reading a piece that you wrote on LinkedIn, No More Secret Allies. Do not text me about how mad you are about Ahmaud Arbery's murder or George Floyd or the next one that comes across two days late to your social media feed. Do not send me a Slack message telling me how sorry you are about the racist thing that is currently being said to me on the Zoom meeting we are both in right now. Me and only me articles detailing the ins and outs of institutionalized racism. Leave your hashtag Brianna Taylor out of my LinkedIn comments. Get out of my DMs about Amy Cooper, the Central Park Karen she deserved. Undoubtedly, she will be gainfully employed in two months somewhere else, most likely with a and will most certainly get her dog back when the hashtag cease. Do not schedule a meeting with me to check in about what happened when you checked out while it was happening. I do not want to see your private messages. I want to see you put some skin in the game. If you are not willing to risk your professional capital or lose relationships for what you say you value, then you are not in this. I have no use for your anger. I need your action. No more secret allies. That is so powerful. So I want to start there. I, I told you this before, but I want to say it publicly. I am so thankful for your power and your voice and you are because when I see your post, I am inspired. I gain strength from your strength. So. Tell us what this piece, No More Secret Allies. It is probably the most accurate reflection of exactly what I was feeling at that moment. And that's why it's really interesting to hear you read it back to me because it feels new. It feels fresh. It feels like I didn't even write it because it was just coming out of me. I was getting the, the messages, right? I was getting the private messages from white folks in my circle who wanted to talk about what's happening. I was thinking about all the times when really racist things were happening to me publicly at work and nobody said anything. And this is a behavior that happens like even when I was back in grad school, even back when I was an undergrad, where you're constantly speaking out about something, you're taking on the risk and people are waiting until after that moment to show their allyship with you. And I'm done. You know, with everything that was happening, it just felt so concentrated. I was getting so many messages from folks and then looking at their social media pages and it's just like sunshine and butterflies, you know? And I'm like, I cannot keep getting these messages. And I wanted to express that in a way to primarily get people to stop messaging me. Because I was going through my own process of everything that was happening. I was, I was mad. I was upset. I was, you know, tired and exhausted and, and anxious. I can't take on the emotional stress of people who want to show allyship with me, but are part of the system that makes these things possible, that allows pe Black people to suffer in silence, whether yeah. it's on the streets or in, in our offices. And so I think the I would not have posted that if I was employed somewhere, you know, and Nicole Taylor wrote a piece for the New York Times recently about 
how NDAs tied to severance packages are ways to keep people silent and Black people, you know, in this instance, silent about things that were happening to them at work. I feel free because I'm not employed to fully express myself, particularly targeting folks who have worked with me and I've worked for. And so I think that's the power. Like, what are the things that you can say when you're free, when you are done and have a space and a platform to be able to express that? And it it definitely is a post that resonated with a lot of people who have experienced the secret allyship. And for folks who read it, maybe felt defensive and settled with it, like, wow, I do those things. That post, it, it still gets me, like even you reading it to me, it still gets me with this added burden of managing allies who don't want to show up for you publicly. I'm so glad you wrote it. And it, I think it resonated with me deeply because I feel the same way on so many levels. I'm always concerned about being polite. So when someone hits me with the article or join this anti-racism webinar, I don't want to join the anti-racism webinar because I'm not the problem. Exactly. So you gave me the power with your post to respond to someone and say, no, thanks. I don't want to be on this webinar. Please stop tagging me in it. And she was offended. But I also felt like I don't care that you're offended because I'm aware that I'm not the cause of this problem. So I am not the, I'm not responsible for the solution. I'm so glad you wrote that because I know you probably gave that same power to so many other people who are not reaching out to you. For sure. You know, no is a complete sentence. I think that came from Oprah. But I have been getting so much power and self-care, honestly, to be able to say no to people, for that to be it. And for me not to apologize for this and that and for not texting people back right? Like this is the time where I feel the most in charge of my emotional space, right? And there's space to allow people, allow Black people to be rude to you, right? (laughs) There's a collective understanding right now more than ever that Black people are tired and exhausted and have a whole emotional world, a whole emotional dimension that white people have not thought about before. And I am also getting, receiving a lot of space from people when I do say no, or when I don't respond, that they get it. Maybe they're pissed about it, but I think there's space right now to not face as many consequences or backlash for that same behavior before this time. That's a a great segue before this time. You wrote another piece on LinkedIn that talked about how when COVID hit, that the DIE professionals were some of the first to get slashed. And then a few months later, here comes everybody with Black Squares and Black Lives Matter hashtags. Can you unpack that for us? Yes. So there are a lot of companies that have diversity, equity, inclusion, like personnel, like one person. You know, if you're lucky, maybe you get a team or several teams, or there are some dedicated initiatives towards representation and belonging and equity within the workplace. To even get to that point, to hire people, have specific headcount for diversity and inclusion initiatives took many, many, many years to get to that point, right? Companies weren't like, you know what, let's start this company and let's talk about racism, right? Like that was a push from a lot of people to make that happen. And then as soon as the purse strings 
start to close, right? As soon as COVID-19 starts to pinch a lot of companies in terms of their bottom line, and they're looking at their departments, I know a lot of people in the DEI space who got furloughed or who got laid off, myself included. Like that's the first, that has been like the first batch for a lot of companies that they were going to cut back on DEI initiatives. And so I put out a call out actually to LinkedIn to ask people like, hey, if this happened to you, share your story with me. And I received stories from folks all across the country who got cut and lost their jobs, you know? And then a couple of months later, from you know friends that they still have at the company are um, trying to institute kind of the plans that they left behind without having the people who has that have that expertise to execute on it. Yeah. And so folks are scrambling like, okay, what is this DI thing? You know, what did Stacy say? Let me try to figure this out, right? And what's interesting is that something that else that I've seen is that people who got laid off from one company when the racial uprising started, you know, more headcounts started opening up and then moved to other companies. And so it's a really interesting dynamic of okay, this actually isn't important to us if we don't have we don't have the money for this. You know, we can't do, you know, diversity and inclusion work. Like it, we can't we can't put money towards that. Two months later, I need a director for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I need a project manager. I need someone in HR. And suddenly there's there's money. Right. Suddenly, like people need to hire more people or they're scrambling to execute on plans that were left behind. You know, even me, I was getting pinged by former employers to weigh in on what they should do. And I'm like, wait, you know, y'all fired me, right? You know, I don't work there anymore, right? And now you're asking for my expertise? Absolutely not. And, you know, right. before I was doing a lot of um, speaking engagements, you know, in, across the country related to women of color in the workplace and other DEI focused issues. And all of those things got canceled, you know, because travel and money and all of that. Two months later, I cannot even describe what my inbox looks like of people wanting me to be a part of webinars and facilitate workshops and stuff on these issues. And people are asking the questions that they were ready to let go of when they thought that their bottom line was being impacted. And so what all of that says to me is that it's not about you not having the resources to support this work. It is about your prioritization. Yes. It is about social pressure. It's about political will. It's about you actually wanting to do the work, right? Right. right. And because there's this massive social pressure right now to show up for Black lives, people who fired all their Black people are trying to figure out how to show up right now. Is it because this company is is shifting and their dynamics and they want to work towards racial equity and all of that? No. There's a portal that is open right now that demands that corporations and organizations show up for racial equity. And they're trying to meet that demand, but obliterated their infrastructure, if they even had any, to do that. So spot on. I remember when the initial blackout day, those squares posted, and then a few days later when the public statement started to be released, Black Twitter was lit. 
and black twitter was like oh so this is it's like in reality and i think that the black twitter audience was a huge catalyst in calling up it and saying don't make this post without backing it up in action because it is a completely different story inside of the organization and i'm so happy that people felt bold enough to say that because it was a strong catalyst for so many people saying enough is enough we're not going to sit back and worry about our jobs because one our lives are on the line and we can no longer play this do all in secret we talk about that you know they not boom 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 but in public we're quiet so what you said earlier about you had the freedom because you weren't employed I struggle with something similar because I have corporate clients. I definitely was nervous. Like, will I lose these contracts? Because this is how I pay my bills. I just prayed about it. And I was like, I have to let my truth be told. Because I have an audience and a platform. I cannot, as a Black woman, I just can't worry about myself right now. I have to be a part of the community. This is not the season to fire Black people. Right. This is not the season to not specifically look out partnerships with Black people to show the world that you're in alignment with your corporate statement. And I actually see it a different way. I want the companies that don't hire Black people, don't pay Black people, don't promote Black people, don't listen to Black people. Mm -hmm. I want them to say Black Lives Matter. I want you to say that you stand with Black Lives because your bad yeah. corporate statement becomes the, the, the door. That becomes the avenue for me to start asking for receipts. You can't ask for receipts if they don't make that statement. And so if you have company A that says nothing, and then suddenly Black Twitter is like company A was good. And they're like, was good. I didn't say anything. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> but if company A is like, I stand with Black Lives then that's what opens the opportunity for you to start asking for these receipts. And that is the power of this moment. And to be honest, I don't think that companies and corporations would be standing in this way without the Amy Cooper situation. Uh, The perfect segue. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So police brutality has a long history in this country. It is not that many years ago where there were uprisings, you know, with, Mike Brown and other folks, Philando Castile and other folks who lost their lives to police violence, right? These things happen. These things take hold of, you know, our public discourse and our mindset. But it could be seen as like this thing that happens in the streets, this thing that's specific with police. But because Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all these things happened in the same day, same week as the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper situation, then that line between that quote unquote soft racism Mm -hmm. and death, that connection was made. Yeah. That the nuances of our communication, the performance of, of a white woman in distress, right? These, these small micro, these microaggressions that connects it's in the same trajectory of police violence. Absolutely. And the Amy Cooper situation brought it home into our companies. Because her company let her go and made that stand, I think that 
was kind of the nudge for people to connect police brutality and how many black executives you have at your company, right? It seems like a stretch, but it's all connected. And because we had these two extremes represented within a really short period of time, I think that gave way for us to talk about the system of racism, the institutionalization of racist ideas, and what's going on with the disproportionate deaths and sickness from COVID-19 on black and brown communities, right? Now we're talking about healthcare. And so we're in this huge conversation right now about institutionalized racism. And we're, we're talking about, and also not just talking about police brutality. And that's right. the power of this moment is that we're trying to unpack and undo and change a system, not just specific events. That is so beautiful. Broke that down and connected the dots for people who may still not understand it. I know your background is public health and you are also a cancer survivor. So when we look at how Black people have been just disproportionately devastated in the communities as a result of COVID, some of your thoughts surrounding public health and some of the things that we can be doing to move us forward so that we're eliminating that type of systematic racism where we see our community being wiped out. What's interesting about this and what's resonating for me right now is this happened in Washington. Um, I'm based in Seattle and I'm not sure if this happened in other places around the country, but there was this big like medical community public health protest where there are a lot of signs that racism is a public health issue, white coats for black lives and having the medical community really standing in this moment, which I thought was very powerful. And it also enraged me. It took me three years to get diagnosed. Three years of me trying to go in and out of doctor's offices and telling them and trying to convince them that this pain that I was feeling was real and for them to take me seriously, which we know studies have shown that the medical community feel like Black people don't feel pain or they have a higher level of pain tolerance. Right. And so what was happening with me wasn't real. The first doctor I went to told me to just like take Advil every once in a while and that I had tendinitis. Three years later, they're like, oh, no, girl, you have a tumor in your spinal cord. And if you don't take it out, it's going to completely paralyze you from your neck down. Oh, and by the way, the surgery can also paralyze you, which it did. And, you know, it took a long time for me to get mobile and stuff. And so When I think about like the slower rates that Black folks get diagnosed, the disproportionate maternal mortality rate with Black and Brown mothers, with what's happening with COVID-19, not because genetically Black people are sick, but we create environments that make Black people sick. Black kids don't just happen to have more asthma. You put your factories to pollute air in Black and Brown communities. There's a system that creates sickness in Black people, not just environmentally, but also even in our offices. Your toxic work environment makes me sick. When we think about what stress does to the body and then layer on chronic racial stress, that damages you physiologically. That impacts what is actually physically happening in your body. And I think people think that like, oh, microaggressions are just about people like being mean to you. 
but I had a, a coworker who was constantly microaggressing me and another uh, black coworker who we would talk about this whole thing with. And I was like, listen, I just cannot talk to Melissa today because she's going to give me a low birth weight baby. Like that <laughs> is the connection. My yeah. conversation with Melissa is going to have an impact on the birth, the weight, birth weight of my child. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that is the connection. And so what can we do in that environment? There's a whole system that needs to shift. We need to have a racial equity lens on all the decisions that we make that impact people of color. The fact that Anthony Fauci just like many, many weeks after the whole thing, when Rep Presley and Elizabeth Warren were advocating for race data on COVID-19 impacts and, and deaths in people who are sick, the fact that that wasn't part of it from the onset lets me know that you're not doing this work from a racial equity lens. Right. Anybody in the medical field, in the health field would know that whatever is going to happen is going to disproportionately devastate the Black community. And so what are you doing from the beginning? And so the biggest work in this is for leaders and decision makers who decide things around where businesses go, different policies around the environment, all of that stuff, they have to do their work through a racial equity lens, period. If you're not doing like your city planning, understanding that, then you're not doing your job. And as individuals, we have to skill up. We have to understand that anytime we enter a doctor's office, anytime we make decisions about where we go and whatever, it's going to have an, an impact on our health. And so what can we know? What information can we get before we need it? So when we walk into a doctor's office, when we start encountering different health issues, we know how to advocate for ourselves. Advocating for yourself is the best thing that individuals can do. And press and press and press. Do research, advocate for yourself, find other people to advocate for you, because that is how you're going to advance like as an individual in this system. Yes. And I'm so glad you gave us an action step that we have to go in armed. And for many of the winning season community, we're dealing with people who are mid-career professionals, but they're also trying to educate their family members. So I hope that winning season, you all take this as a further charge when you have your auntie, your moms, your uncles, relatives going into doctor's offices, or at least give them questions to ask when they're in those offices so that they walk out in a better position. Because if they don't know what to ask and we're not educating them, then we know that their best interests may not be served. The point, just bringing it all home, my mom was rushed to the hospital last week because she was put on two medications that made her back. For me, being in another state, waking up, seeing that overnight my mom was taken to the ambulance, I'm taken by ambulance to the hospital, I thought about what happened. She went to the doctor last week. What happened in that doctor's visit? One week later, she's in the hospital. So just bring all these things are connected, right? If corporations are really going to matter, then also, yes, you have to, where are your plants? Where are you dumping your pollution? How are you paying your people? All of these things are one big piece to, they're all pieces to this big puzzle. They're not separate. They're all related. And I think also one of the beautiful things that you're doing is you are letting people see these are not separate issues. They're all connected. 
talk to you all day, but I do want to respect your time. Can you tell us about your upcoming book, Black Cancer, and also tell us about your podcast? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. So the book and the podcast are of the same name, Black Cancer, and it's chronicling my journey about a year and a half from a depression that I was going through from a stupid boy (laughs) and how my cancer diagnosis actually saved me from that because it gave me something to fight for, to want to live. It's about what it means to seek help as a Black woman when you understand that you're strong. People tell you that you're strong. Society tells you that you're strong. You identify as strong. And so how do strong people ask for help? How do strong people get help? Do you know how to help strong people? And what that looks like in navigating relationships with friends, with family, with the healthcare system, and what it takes to pull out of something like that. And so what I'm looking to do with the book is disrupting this idea of strong as something that protects you. Being strong is something that can also put you at risk because maybe you're not aware of when you need help. And so that's told through my cancer story. After my surgery, I was partially paralyzed and went through a long process of relearning how to walk, relearning how to use my hand, relearning how to type, going to the bathroom, like really basic things. And so it does damage the psyche to have this extended period of time where you need so much and needing a lot damaged a lot of my social relationships because it's hard to show up for someone who never needed something from you before. And the podcast doesn't center on my story, but my experience has put me in this cancer community that is the community that nobody wants to be a part of, but so many of us are a part of. And so I interview just regular people just like me who have had cancer and survived it, who are currently going through treatment, who have been caregivers of family members who had their cancer journey, and those who lost loved ones due to cancer. And so what I want to explore in that, um, and I'm all talking to only folks of color in this, is that one person's cancer story is a lot of people's cancer stories. Yeah. Right. Like that impacts a lot of people. And I want to paint a really nuanced picture of what cancer means in the lives of people of color, because our stories, our perspectives are not elevated in the mainstream. When I got my cancer diagnosis, I was not looking for pink ribbons. I wanted someone to really sit with me and see me with all the complexities of the journey that I was about to embark on. And when I started my journey, I just, I didn't have any community at all of people who, you know, were similarly oriented to me and I can be in real conversation and community with. And so that's the goal of the podcast. I mean, it should be out sometime late summer. I'm really excited about it. I am so excited for both of these projects. Where can people go to get on your email list to find out more about things that you're doing and also to stay informed about your thought pieces? Yeah, everything is on my website, jodianbury.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at jodianbury and connect with me on LinkedIn. 
I do have a Twitter account, but I literally just learned how to use Twitter two weeks ago. So there's not that much exciting that's happening there. And so I have a, a mailing list on my website. Instagram and LinkedIn are the best places to find me. Yes. Thank you so much for the podcast, for having this. It is food for my soul whenever I see you post on LinkedIn. So y'all, I'm going to link up to all of Jodi Ann's profiles, her website as well inside of the show notes for this episode please connect with her she's doing amazing work if your company is looking for a consultant to analyze and to help them get a real plan together please uh, reach out to her as she can definitely help your organization move forward in a very meaningful way so until next time y'all continue to emulate excellence and eliminate excuses you're so great thank you so much for this no thank you and and i know we went over time so i appreciate your grace and support anything that you have let me know uh, especially when your book comes out just say the word and i will do all i can to help <laughs> Thank you so much, Jacqueline. I appreciate it. And I love the work that you're doing. And I'm just rooting for you. Everything that you're doing is amazing. Thank you so much for for your voice. Thank you. I I receive that. (laughs) All right. Have a good day. Talk to you soon. Awesome. And oh, last thing. Episode is going to come out next week. Okay. So uh, it's going to be a part of a series of conversations that I've had with different uh, people surrounding just the whole, our current environment. And yeah. so I have one, one black man and then I have a younger and possibly one other person, but it will be a part of a series because I, my intention is to make people uncomfortable so that they yeah. start to take action. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your work. And I'm excited to listen to it. I'm like nervous, but I'm sure it'll be fine because you're amazing. (laughs) No, you were, you were dynamic. So this can be your TED talk. Oh my God. You know, I got TEDx. You're so funny. You know, I got TEDx Seattle. So I'm doing a TED talk in November. Okay. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Yeah. So I'm talking about authenticity in the workplace and why I think it's bullshit. <laughs> I like, uh, don't tell me to be authentic when your corporate culture is garbage. <laughs> like, right. You be authentic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so excited good. for that. That recording. Awesome. Well, Alrighty. Have a day. You too. Bye. Bye. Before we go, I would love to say thank you to the Zero Gap team who makes this podcast possible. Now, Zero Gap is the company that I run, and without Zero Gap, we would not have this winning season podcast. So head over to zerogap.co for resources and tools to help you lead unapologetically, increase your confidence, and to be bold in your decisions as a woman working within a male dominated industry. 